Hi, listeners. This is Understand South Carolina, a weekly news podcast from the Post and Courier. I'm Emily Williams. And I'm Gavin McIntyre. Today, we're bringing you updates on our Rising Water series. Over the past year, our reporters have been investigating the effects of climate change here in the Lowcountry. Our team has reported on how habitual flooding has threatened business in Charleston. Or about the dangerous levels of bacteria found in floodwaters and much more. Today on the show, we have Projects reporter Tony Bartlemy, who has led the Rising Waters team coverage over the past year. Tony is going to talk to us about what he and the team learned while covering the climate crisis. So welcome back to the podcast, Tony. It's nice to be here. So you came on the, the show back in May to kind of give a preview of what this project would be and what you'd be covering. So looking back now, we're in December how did things go? Oh, you know, what, what went as you expected and maybe what what did not? Well, it was a challenging project. Things kind of went sideways a bunch of times. So the basic premise of the of the project was to take a look at all the effects of climate change on the low country and then report on these effects in real time when a breaking news event was taking place, such as a flooding rain or a unusually high tide or a hurricane heading our way. And so that involved a lot of planning, pre-planning, first of all, kind of getting a handle on the various issues, getting all that sort of background knowledge in place, and then creating the, the kind of teams that of reporters uh, to report what was actually happening on the day of a of breaking event. So the idea was to, to to add a sense of urgency to a very urgent issue, and that's the viability of Charleston as seas rise and as rain storms get heavier. And what were some of the areas around the county uh, you were looking at during this series of stories? We were looking at areas that were the the most vulnerable to both rising sea levels, so marshlands and, and areas that flood a lot in Charleston. And that can actually be in areas deep inland and also areas that experience a lot of rain. Well, look, yeah, we all experience a lot of rain when these rain bombs hit. We tried to target areas downtown, especially uh, especially when we looked at bacteria in the floodwaters. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what you found? Yeah. So that's a, an issue that's very close to home for me, literally, because I live in an area downtown where it floods often and it floods a lot. I will walk out my door and be up to my thighs in, in, in a bad rain. So I don't, we'd always wondered what was in these floodwaters because people swim in them and they boat. I've seen people jet ski in, in a bad storm. So we took a, a, a harder look at the bacteria. We took samples throughout the, throughout the area during some of these flooding rains and what we found was really kind of disgusting. Can you be a little more specific? How disgusting? (laughs) So, so we were measuring essentially poop bacteria, E. coli, and that stuff makes you sick if you're exposed to it. We took samples and we found thousands and thousands of cell colonies in, in each sample. Often dozens or hundreds of times higher than what would be considered safe in a in a lake. So we're essentially swimming in, in sewage or walking, wading through sewage. And one of the interesting things that we did, and it had never been done before, and that was we, we analyzed water that rises during these unusually high tides, what we call sometimes call 
sunny day tides, sunny day floods. And nobody had really measured the bacteria levels in those. And we also found very, very high levels, not quite as high as uh, flooding rain, but, but still a health hazard. Yeah, it's always been, you know, fun to see those videos of people, you know, on the surfboard or jet ski or float going on the water. But, you know, reading the story, you kind of realize, like, how dangerous and disgusting it is to just be in that water. I guess, what were some of the reactions you got from people around Charleston? To be honest, I don't think people are going to stop wading or stop windsurfing or stop goofing off in these waters because that's because people are just people. But at least they know that they may, and maybe a few people will maybe... They'll be a little more careful when they walk through that stuff. I was I was curious what your thoughts were on our reporting on the business impacts of flooding and and also just the business community's response. That was some reporting that I contributed to, and I know one of the things that I found interesting was that while there was definitely agreement in the business community, flooding is an issue, flooding is something that we need to address – when you dug a little further, there wasn't a whole lot beyond that in terms of plans. Yeah, Emily, your story was very important. What you know, how will sea rise affect the business community? And I think we're in an interesting period right now in in Charleston's history, where the city is not uh, about to go underwater, but in a few decades, that prospect is likely. Uh, and so wh- what do businesses do about that? W- will there be a tipping point? I don't think we've reached a tipping point. Will there be a tipping point where businesses say, Ooh, I don't know, Charleston may not be the best place to locate. We may, it may cost too much to clean up after floods. We better move to a different different place. So I think you know that story was really important because it, it also it was a little bit of a, a probe into the business community and their responsibility to acknowledge what was going on and and think harder about it. And you also focused on kind of the inequities that come with flooding too and focused on Gasden Green, um, the East Side and the Rosemont communities. The social justice side of this of this issue is really important. One thing we we found over the over the course of the project was that areas that flood frequently often also are in areas where there are uh, low income residents and what's what's happening to them and are, are their voices being heard are we creating sort of health hazards for people who really are vulnerable and, and i think that's a huge issue moving forward gadsden green is a as a housing project on charleston's west side of the, the west side of the peninsula and it it actually has a street named a flood street that i know you and you know gavin uh you you know that's a prime spot to go take a picture during a just a regular tidal flood but these poor residents you know they're they're living with this stuff all the time i don't in my mind there's a real social justice issue here what was something maybe that surprised you in the process this year. Um, obviously, you came into this with an understanding of the climate crisis in Charleston. That's what prompted doing the project in the first place. But was there anything that surprised you in this process? Something that we looked at just recently, and that was how the tree cover had changed over over the years. And by tree cover, uh, the tree canopy, uh, the, the amount of trees that are in our area, and in that relationship between trees and stormwater 
And so we took a, we did a collaboration with the College of Charleston and they, they used advanced satellites and aerial imagery to take a look at how the, the trees had changed over the past three decades. And what they came up with startling, uh, we had lost more than 10,000 acres of tree cover in the Charleston metro area. Despite tree ordinances and all that, we'd lost the equivalent of the peninsula, uh, peninsula of Charleston and Daniel Island combined, or 8,000 football fields of trees. That has a major impact on, on how our, our, our ability to handle a flooding rain. The latest installment of Rising Waters was all about how the loss of tree coverage in Charleston has made us more vulnerable to the effects of climate change. We checked in with someone who could give more insight on why protecting our existing trees and planting new ones is one of the keys to addressing our flooding problem. Well, I'm Joshua Robinson. I'm an engineer by training. Uh, the work I do is, when the, is within the field of uh, environmental hydrology uh, the firm that I started in 2008 is Robinson Design Engineers. Uh, we're headquartered here in Charleston, but we also have an office in Western North Carolina. Uh, most of our work is with sort of nature-based solutions to stormwater management, and we also do stream and wetland restoration and riverbank stabilization and projects like that that involve connecting people to water. This last installment of the Rising Water series was all about trees. Trees and the loss of them and what that has to do with our flooding problem. So just to start, what does a loss of trees have to do with flooding getting worse in the low country? You know, as an engineer, uh, I was trained, at least academically trained, to think about flooding as something that occurs on an individual storm event basis. So you look at flooding over something like a day, you know, you have a heavy rain event and then it floods. So we're taught to analyze that flood event over the course of a day, you know, 24 hour period or even a couple of days. But what I didn't learn necessarily in, in my academic training, but what I've learned in practice and what we see borne out all around us is that it's not that the trees are using water during that flood event, it's that the trees are using water in the shallow groundwater and they're actually maintaining the proper water levels in the soil that then helps the soil to have that absorptive capacity when it does rain. In a place like the, the low country, where we have shallow groundwater almost everywhere, and we have very warm conditions and the types of trees that grow here use a lot of water. When you remove those trees, there's simply a lot of water that has nowhere to go. Can we quantify in any way the value of of maybe just one tree, you know, in terms of what happens when we have rainfall, of course, trees use a lot of that water, but, but can we get down into the numbers of that? You know, what's the value of one tree in terms of flood prevention, I guess? Yeah. I mean, there are academic studies, you know, happening and have been going on for a long time about that specific question. You know, and that question is quantifying evapotranspiration, you know, uh, when we think of that, we think of it as a water balance. You think about an, a, a land area and we just think of it as, you know, adding up all the things we can add up. How much rain falls in this area? How much water flows out of the area? So we'll measure stream flows. Uh, how much of that water goes into the ground? And then how much of that water goes up into the sky through trees? So there are ways to measure that. There are ways to estimate it or to use computer models to estimate that. 
a lot of the calculations really come from agriculture. For many years, agriculture and agronomists and agricultural engineers have researched things like how much irrigation water does it take to grow a certain crop. So a lot of the information we have actually comes from agriculture. And more recently, there's been studies that are looking at it in reverse. Instead of how can we give these plants the least amount of water possible for them to thrive? You know, now these studies are looking at what types of trees do we need to plant? How old do they need to be to use the most water possible? And that's kind of an exciting thing because, you know, the question you ask, how much water does a tree use? It just depends. It depends on how old the tree is, what type of tree is it, how much groundwater there is for the tree, you know, that's available for the tree. And so for us as designers, one of our, our jobs is to try to pair the right tree with the right place so that it has the right conditions to do the most work. And oftentimes to do the most work would be to use the most water so that in something like a constructed stormwater wetland, you know, we want to have areas of trees and plants that are going to use a lot of water so they can draw that water down and prepare that area to receive more water next time it rains. But those are, I mean, that's the right question that you asked, but it's just very hard to calculate. And more as time goes on, we have more tools as engineers and designers to make those specific types of calculations. What does the role of new development, which we have seen really at a rapid pace in Charleston, have to do with this too? What is the impact there of new development, which of course means more parking lots, more paved areas? Yeah, that's a great question. Land development, if, if you compare a forested area in the low country and compare that to a developed area, whether it's a commercial development or a residential neighborhood, the commercial development and the residential neighborhood create more runoff. It's just physics, you know. There is a difference between developments that were built several decades ago when, when uh, you know, our community didn't have the same degree of stormwater rules in place. A lot of those early developments did not use things like stormwater ponds or, or detention basins of any kind. So that water just ran off of the streets, ran off the rooftops and the yards and went to the nearest creek or the nearest ditch. Land development projects that are more recent, you know, in the last decade or two, have been, you know, required to implement things like stormwater ponds and storm sewers and detention basins. And so that has done a lot to help, you know, mitigate the impacts of flooding. So uh, the new development projects produce a lot less flooding than, say, you know, development projects several decades ago. But the question we're faced with now is, you know, there's a lot of things changing. The, the landscape is changing. We're removing, you know, trees and, and vegetation at a large rate, but also rainfall appears to be intensifying you know, in, in drainage basins where the tailwater or where the water, it discharges into a tidal creek and the, that level is, you know, gradually coming up because of sea level rise or during something like a king tide or a storm surge, there's just more water falling on the landscape. There's less place for the water to go because there's more salt water coming in on the downstream end. So a lot of these developed areas, uh, whether they're existing neighborhoods or whether they're new developments, they're sort of caught in that middle that middle zone. So the question now, sort of the existential question is, the last five, six years, we've had multiple storms that exceed this 25-year recurrence interval threshold. So it sort of begs the question, if it's supposed to happen on average once every 25 years, and we've already had several of them in the last five years, then are, are we doing enough? Or, or is there something here that maybe we're missing? And that's that's really sort of how I think we should be looking at development projects is not are we meeting the minimum standards, but we have to leave a lot of room for unknowns because clearly there are a lot of unknowns in what we're seeing around our area. Sounds like we're dealing with the issue, too, of trying to 
put back nature that we took away. And I would think um, a newly planted tree is not necessarily going to be the same value as one that had been there prior to development. It's really not about leaving individual trees, although that is really important. It's really about, as you pointed out, you know, leaving groupings, you know, clusters, are undeveloped tracks, undeveloped areas within developed areas so that they are, so the soil is opening up and the soil is really having kind of that sponge-like effect. It's not just the trees, it's the other plants, it's the understory all working together in concert to manage the water. And also, you know, we haven't even talked about like the habitat values and bringing in songboard, songbirds and beneficial, you know, pollinating in, insects and all these other things that it's, it really is all kind of a system that works together. We have to start somewhere. And to my mind, that means really scrutinizing everywhere that we're thinking of clearing trees and undergrowth and, and leaving as much as possible undisturbed. And then areas we have to disturb, uh, replanting them with as large of trees as we can and with a significant understory and, and changing that, you know, as, as the way we live. I mean, I would say most people just inherently enjoy living in a place that has trees and areas that are undisturbed, natural areas. There's all sorts of studies that show that. And I think you look around the places in Charleston that are very desirable to live and, and you see some of those qualities there as well, mature trees and undisturbed areas and vistas of marshes and woodlands and things like that. So I, I think it, this is going to have to be a cultural shift with the way we develop uh, and the way we use land. And, and I see a lot of, uh, of real you know, hopeful points of light that, that we're making some of those changes. This issue of trees in the low country, it's not just this sort of environmentalist tree hugger issue, right? It's, we have a very long growing season here. We have very warm temperatures. Uh, we have a very humid climate. And so what that means is, as opposed to other areas in the country that have a shorter growing season or, you know, where the trees and vegetation basically shuts down during the winter months, you know, we have the potential to, to have some very beautiful and sophisticated and well-functioning nature-based solutions to, to stormwater management and flood management. It's not really that complicated. You know, the engineering behind it can sometimes be complicated, but it really, a lot of times it really is as simple as digging a small hole, putting potting soil in it and putting plant material in it that likes water. That's the great thing to my mind about kind of these nature-based solutions is they don't have to be these huge engineered projects with concrete and diesel fuel and pumps and pile drivers a lot of it is just distributed democratic stormwater management in a very some very simple old school technologies you know that that people used for thousands of years to manage stormwater we just we just have some new problems now and and sometimes we we're tempted to think that what used to work will no longer work but in fact i think that what used to work is going to work better now we just have to get a little bit smarter about how we do it Before we wrap up today, we're going to hear from Tony again on five things we can do right now to help Charleston stay above water. Number one, explore countywide solutions. You know, the cost of, of all this, all the efforts to protect our city. But the thing to remember is that we've, we've done this before as a, as a metro area. The biggest example is rebuilding Charleston County schools since uh, 1999. The district raised, I think, $1.3 billion through various bond referendums. But that required coming together, it required leadership and vision. But I think it's just important to remember that we can do that. 
Another solution you brought up was plant more trees. And you mentioned that we've lost 10,000 acres here. What is the difference like one tree can make? Just a single tree, a single mature tree can can pump 100 gallons of, of water. And this over the course of a year, we're talking thousands of gallons of water that end up going into the ground, being pulled in by the trees, and then essentially pumped out of the tree in a, in a, in a very, very fine mist. It's, the trees are like little air conditioners, little humidifiers that cool the city as well. But this, this manages, helps us manage stormwater in a beautiful, clean, highly effective way. So we need more of them. That's a simple solution. So the question is, how do you do that? And you mentioned creating tree advocacy group. Are there any examples of this in Charleston or anywhere else that we could look to? One of the suggestions, and this was uh, offered by a consultant that the city hired, was to create a nonprofit tree advocacy group. The city, basically, when it got that recommendation, just sat on it, hasn't done anything. So we do have a a great group, the Charleston uh, Parks Conservancy has a tree subcommittee, which is not particularly active. A good model is in Charlotte, and they have a very active tree advocacy group called uh, Trees Charlotte, and it includes members across the community in all political economic stripes, and they plant lots and lots of trees. So I thought that number four on this list was, was interesting. Some some explanation for this is helpful. Respect and protect pines. So I guess first, I, I didn't realize pines were being disrespected. Why? <laughs> so in, in 1989, Hugo hits and just knocked down so many pine trees, and, and especially north of the city, uh, it snapped them in half and knocked these lots of pine trees on people's houses. So, so all of a sudden, these great trees... Yeah, everybody wanted to cut them down. That's unfortunate because the pine trees, while they they can tip over, uh, they and they are actually are among the best pumps, stormwater pumps. That and they're adapted to our area. That they belong here, but they're also excluded from many tree ordinances. So grand tree ordinances. So if you have a large pine tree, you can cut it down. It's there, there's a sort of ment- anti pine mentality out there that's not helpful. And then that final item there, number five, is protect more open space. What's the, because uh, I know you you broke this down by an actual dollar amount. What's the return on investment for doing that, for protecting open space? Well, the Open Space Institute, which helps protect land in our area, uh, calculates that every dollar that we spend to protect open space saves $5 in likely flood impacts or damage. So essentially, open space is a lot more valuable than perhaps we acknowledge. And there's a tremendous example uh, that happened here in our area a few years back when Hurricane Florence came through and just dumped two feet of rain all over the area. And there, there was just you know crazy amount of water heading toward Georgetown. Emergency officials ordered Georgetown to be evacuated because they expected three to feet of rain, to, uh, three feet of water to hit that town and just really hit it hard. But instead, all this water 
sort of filled in, uh, the wetlands and the forests upstream, enough water to fill Lake Moultrie and held that water and saved that city. So under, open space is, you know, very valuable. And we have lots, we still have some open space around the area, but it's also, you know, that's where the, a lot of development goes. These are relatively simple solutions, right? Absolutely. It's uh, not very complicated to plant more trees. It's not very complicated to set up groups to advocate for this and help incentivize planting more trees, help people, you know, maybe even subsidize the planting of trees on private property. And we've we've done it before in terms of funding a lot of these big big ticket projects. So it's all it's all it's all doable. What's next for reporting on climate change or for rising waters? I think we will continue writing these these sort of contextual stories amid a breaking event. It's a really interesting and unique way of, of, of doing stories because we drop in contextual information during a moment when everybody's experiencing this event. And so everybody's minds are, 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 are focusing a little more sharply at that time. So we're able to, I don't know, create a, a, a little more interest and, and attention to some of the more contextual issues and just creates just a more journalistically, a more solid story. So we'll be doing more uh, on that vein. We're, we've got a couple of ideas uh, that we're working on. We'll see if it rains. What are some of the takeaways that you're hoping readers are getting from the Rising Waters series? There are three or four important takeaways, I think. The first one is that climate change is happening. And of course, climate has always changed. But here's the, the real difference and the real thing that's happening is that the pace of change has increased. So the seas are rising faster, the rain is getting heavier, and we've got to deal with that. The second thing is that our community's future viability is at stake. So we need to take it. We need to take action. And the third thing is that it's doable. We have an ability to find solutions. We just need uh, a vision and leadership to make that happen. If you want to learn more, there is so much more Rising Waters content for you. We have long-form articles, graphics, photos, video, other episodes of this podcast, and even a comic. We'll include the link to our Rising Waters homepage in today's show notes. And remember, if you subscribe to our Understand SC newsletter, you'll receive links to related articles with every episode. The link to sign up is always on our Understand SC homepage. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Find us on Twitter at Understand SC. Thank you. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or on Twitter at understandsc. If you're a fan of this show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. We'll see y'all next week.